Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out everything they got going on over at OsirisPod.com. Always something fun. New podcast, live events. That's OsirisPod.com. In this episode, I present an interview with Sean Enfield, an essayist, poet, bassist, and educator from Dallas, Texas. Currently, he resides in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he is a PhD candidate at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. He received his MFA in creative writing from the University of Alaska Fairbanks, where he served as the editor-in-chief of Permafrost Magazine. Now, he serves as an assistant nonfiction editor at Terrain.org, an online magazine certainly worth checking out. His essays have been nominated for three push cards, and he was featured on NPR's All Things Considered as a finalist for their three-minute fiction contest. His debut essay collection, Holy American Burnout, the focus of this episode, was the runner-up for the Anne Petrie Award, a finalist for the Megaphone Prize, a finalist for River Teeth's Literary Nonfiction Book Prize, and it's available everywhere now. Grab a copy. It's great. Threading his experiences both as a Texas student and later as a first-year teacher of predominantly Muslim students at a Texas middle school, Holy American Burnout weaves personal essay and cultural critique into the historic fabric of black and biracial identity. In it, Sean intersects examinations of which voices are granted legitimacy by virtue of school curriculum, the complex relationship between basketball and education for black and brown students, his students burgeoning political consciousness during the 2016 presidential campaign, and cultural figures ranging from Kendrick Lamar to Hamlet. These classroom narratives abounding in Holy American Burnout weave around Sean's own formative experiences contending with a conflicted biracial family lineage, as well as reenacting the Middle Passage as the only black student in his 7th grade history class, and later moshing in both Christian and secular hardcore pits. As Sean wrestles with the physical, mental, and emotional burdens that American society places on educators, students, In all relatively conscious minorities in this country, he reaches for an education that better navigates our burnt-out empire. I truly picked up Sean's book on a whim, and I couldn't be happier I did. His takes on race in America, the education system, the current state of the country as a whole, and beyond are thoughtful and deeply thought-provoking. He is also a hell of a writer, and holy American burnout is an excellent read. We get into it all in this interview with Sean Enfield. Hey, Michael, how's it going? Good, how are you? Yeah, pretty good. Good, how was your time? And uh, uh, nice to meet you, first off. Thanks for making <laughs> nice the time. Nice to meet you as well. Yeah. <laughs> I like the, uh, like the uh, run the jewels hoodie. <laughs> oh, thank you. Appreciate it, man. Love those guys. Um, how was uh, AWP? Uh, you know, it's always it's always a lot, but it was a good yeah. time. I saw some folks I hadn't seen in a while. That's that's always the fun part for me is the little little mini reunions. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a lot of work though. It's a lot of lot of uh, talking to folks and the whole thing, but there's fun to be had as well. Yeah, definitely. I uh, had a busy Thursday. I had like a panel and then two offsites back to back. So I kind of uh, I I 
went hard on the first day and then the yeah. next two days I kind of like slowed down and just <laughs> a little bit that must have been was yeah. there a little buzz around the city it's, it was in Kansas City this year I mean there was a Super Bowl in the whole thing people were very hyped there was a lot of a lot of I mean I feel like you can usually tell who's in for the conference no matter where you're at but this yeah. year is really easy if you weren't wearing red and yellow you were certainly there for the conference not, not everybody not exactly everyone everyone else is repping the colors so. oh yeah there's there's chief stuff everywhere and I drove out on Sunday morning and there was people in the hotel like getting hyped already. They had the <laughs> thing on just like, it's, yeah, it was, they, the they, was they, up. they got their W too, which was fun. <laughs> um, hey man, I re I love this book. I'm so glad it kind of came into my world. Um, the essays, a lot of them, I learned a lot. A lot of them were, you know, uh, compelling. There was, there was, there was fun moments with all the pop culture references and like the, all the parallels are drawn. I'm sure we'll get into this, but, um, I thought a fun little way to start would be like, you know, you were just at AWP, you're talking to people about the book. Um, you know, generally speaking, if someone asks you what they're going to get into when they get into, um, you know, uh, Holy American Burnout, what, what, do you, what, what do you tell them that they're going to be digging into? That is a good question. I feel like I got to work on my elevator pitch. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think yeah. that's what I'm asking right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I do. I do. I did get a lot of it this time. And I, I don't know. I feel like I change it up every time. But sure. um, yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the thing I usually lead with is like, you know, the, you know, this, the, the, the burnout of it all, right? The, mm -hmm. um, for me, like the, the part of it that was kind of cathartic for me is the kind of like exploration of like failure in this sense in a way that is, um, Kind of repurposing some of these stories in a in a different light and exploring them from the um the kind of context around them and thinking about it so uh and i actually i just had to do this last night i was explaining the book to somebody and i still i feel like every time i, I don't have the i don't have it dialed in you know no, but, no. Well, i mean we're gonna yeah. get there we're gonna sharpen in that question a little bit too as we go along yeah. i mean but what you said is is it was an exploration of some of you know your failures as you went along the thing and i thought it was so honest and vulnerable in that way and relatable i mean we're all we all go through through these things as we're learning and stuff. So I think another good place to kind of um, lay a foundation for our discussion here is, um, you know, uh, you speak a lot about your childhood and kind of unpacking it as, as you go through and, and, you know, growing up in Texas. And if you could talk to us a little bit about your experience of growing up in Texas, and there's a lot to unpack there, but I mean, kind of how it pertains to what you talked about in the book would be interesting to, to hear about. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if I, I'm I'm thinking in terms of like the um for me the the punk scene, right? And kind of like growing up and playing the music and stuff, but also my family <laughs> background, I guess, the viralness yeah. of it all. Um, when you were so, when you were younger, it was interesting too, because I mean you started out originally at a school where um, you know, it was it was mostly a black school, you know, it was and then you ended up at a school not too much longer after it was a little bit in the country. So you had those two different experiences back to back that kind of made you think about being biracial in America, yeah. and biracial in Texas. That was that was that was interesting to hear about. Yeah, the Dallas Metro is interesting in that way. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's obviously and it's still it's even bigger now than it was when I was growing up. I mean, there's all yeah. kinds. And the suburbs that I was growing up in now have their own suburbs, which is <laughs> uh, I don't know, it's baffling still to see like how big some of these places that were like tiny little country of suburbs that are now just like salon i spent a lot of time these days in fort worth and um so i know i'm getting to know the area a bunch it's almost like dallas arlington and fort worth kind of they keep coming closer and just becoming this giant metropolis <laughs> and yeah. you know it's wild it is wild it's, yeah. it's so wild i was just back there 
a month ago for yep. the holidays and stuff. And yeah, and then so many of my friends have moved out of like uh-huh. where we were all central because it gets bigger and bigger. And so the parts that we were in, you know, it gets expensive to live. So people move out further oh. and further. So now when I go home, I've got to like drive an hour to see everybody. <laughs> and they're both ways. I'm, I think it's going to be real funny in a couple of years when the World Cup gets here and all yeah. these like European folks are coming around, like trying to figure out how to get to the stadium. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's going to be a nightmare. It's going to be a lot of black cars getting called to figure that one out. Um, yeah, because there's no, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, you said you're in Fort Worth. Like, there's no public way to get. There's no. You can't take the dart to the stadium. He's like, yep. yeah. I figured fall. out how to take. I love basketball. I figured out how to take that that rail from uh, downtown Fort Worth. It drops me off right at the um, the American. Yeah. Airport, which is good. I've been going to games and I get down there. I love um, that. It's like the only stadium that you can get to in that area. Absolutely. Like, through, and it's beautiful. And it's great that you can. And I hope because there's talk that they might try to build a new one. I hope that they really still keep it. Like they are talking about that. The Cubans kind of sounds like with that new money and that whole thing they're doing. It's but I mean it's it wholly works what they get going. Um, one thing I learned a lot about, and this is it's 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 fascinating to learn about just because it's experience. I don't know about it, but but it's about being biracial in America, and um, you know you discuss it a whole lot in this book. And I was wondering how you felt about unpacking it in the book or kind of what it was like um, kind of exploring that. And I mean, anything you could tell us about the experience. I mean, there's a couple essays where I really kind of like unpack. Uh, there's, there's the one with my my grandmother, obviously, is where, where I'm really kind of like thinking about that in terms of like the family lineage of it, yeah. um, which is a, a tough one still to kind of like sit with. But I, not that I, not in the sense that I kind of like regret having it in the book or anything like that, but uh, just in terms of like, unpacking that dynamic and thinking about you know the way that um that dynamic is kind of like you know always been with our family in a way not in a way that you know i, I felt that it ever was like you know my grandmother like obviously she loves us right we're, yeah we're, you know, and you know but she she definitely is uh on the republican side of things and um which comes with all the different kinds of republican propaganda you get that is often targeted at um black and brown and uh, LGBTQ people and so she has that kind of like um, belief system that supports that right and so that kind of comes out in these often hard to handle deal with ways right and um, just just kind of puts you in this strange almost out of body experience being yourself a brown uh, person that is then sitting around someone who loves you but then will say sometimes kind of just the most horrendous <laughs> racist shit you've ever heard and you're like i and then turn around like do you want some more sugar in your coffee kind of thing and i was like i you know like that's that's a it's a strange position to be in and uh in a position that i feel like you know a lot of people are in right not just myself and so it's a it seemed um worth exploring in the book in that sense and i and i felt like i had to kind of like i mean it's a book that's primarily about my most of the essays are about my time teaching right yeah. most of the essays are about my time in the classroom but I felt it was important to also kind of dissect who that individual was in those spaces too, that not was. just only limit myself to um, classroom narratives. Because I, I don't, I don't think of it as a book strictly about teaching, which is why maybe I have a hard time with the elevator pitch. Because I think the elevator yeah. pitch, but I feel like I'm supposed to draw to is the, the like, yeah, it's a book about education, it's a book about teaching. But um, I don't know, I kind of resist that. I thought it's a more a book about systems and a, an individual caught up in different systems and. Um, race is one of those systems. You have different kinds of political ways of politicizing race, making systems out of race, right? That my grandma was caught up in, that I was caught up in by Mm -hmm. virtue of being in the family that is half white, half black, and that 
um, a lot of people are caught up in these systems, right? And so, um, you know, I'm interested very much in kind of the way that it shaped those systems have shaped me, and then how I'm then taking that into the this system of education, right? How I'm then taking these kinds of ways that I was brought up into this space where I am now kind of an outsider of that space, right? And uh, yeah. I was teaching at a predominantly um, Islamic school, um, not by like mission, but in terms of just like that was the population of the students we had there. Mm -hmm. um, it was a private school owned by an Islamic woman and her family. And so that kind of became a little safe haven for the, the community there. And then I come in as, you know, half black, half white, a raised Christian, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm an outsider in this space, right? And so that I have these kinds of things that I have to kind of juggle with my own identity in that space. And so it felt important to me to kind of have essays that focused on that and kind of look at that angle and kind of dissect that angle and think about how those systems generate and how that carries over into these other elements and facets of life. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I love what you said there about systems, because I mean, I think that is the pitch. It was just because as you're talking about your experience and then your teaching experience and the students experience, it is it, it does shine a light on these broken American structures and systems out there in a major way. I want to take a step back real quick, because I, I find this interesting. You uh, you write so thoroughly and thoughtfully in these essays about some pretty complicated and also personal personal uh, matters. I'm curious about your writing process because it came up one time that you uh, you use um, is you use a typewriter. Is that is that part of this whole thing? And also it was great. And I don't know if this was I think you're probably focusing on one idea per thing. But, you know, they, they kind of weave together in, in a lot of, you know, uh, you know, what they're what they're saying about you and what you're exploring and the ideas. And they kind of weave together in a really, really cool way. But I'd love to hear you talk about your process a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I I'm, I don't I did put in the book and it's, it was true at a time that I would start yeah. with the typewriter and use the kind of handwritten, uh, not handwritten, but the kind of manually written typewriter draft and then take that to the computer. I uh, don't have a typewriter right now because I, I moved to Milwaukee uh, last year and I drove and I drove in my four door Mazda six sedan, which is limited space. And it was uh, me and my partner at the time and my cat. Uh, so it was just a lot. And unfortunately, the typewriters got left behind in Alaska, and I was hoping at some point I'd go back and get them, and it seems uh, that that's not going to happen. So I, I don't have the typewriters anymore. So I've, 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 that is that part of my process is a little bit kind of changed a little. Although yeah. I do like to start from, I, I guess the main point for me with the typewriters is always to like start with something like outside of the word processor, and uh, not just not just in the sense of like the word processor, like the blank page thing, whatever. It's always going to be a blank page, but mm -hmm. I just find like the it helped me to like have some kind of artifact that like I can then build off of like just to engage my thought my thinking in different ways because mm -hmm. um, I don't know you, I, we all of us we get stuck in certain patterns right and that some of those patterns are rooted in the technology we're using right and so I realize if I'm sitting at my desk at the Microsoft Word I'm going to get stuck in a certain kind of like thought pattern that I'm going to yeah, I'm just I'm a I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to like looking for I can I'll spend if I'm on my computer I'll spend most of my time like just on different search engines like looking for like oh what is that one thing I want to find that one quote that I can like really play off of here and then I'll and I'll spend all my time looking for that quote and no time writing was <laughs> if I like start on like the typewriter was one way I've done it but if I start even just on like the notes app on my phone it's so much more tricky to like switch to a different thing so I was like well I just got to get out of the headspace I can't look for this we don't have time to look for that one Baldwin quote that I want to respond to. I just need to kind of get some ideas first and then I can come back and find some quotes when I'm looking for oh, when I'm a processor. So yeah, I like to like just have some kind of like little, I, I it used to be even before the typewriter, I would just like have 
the back of receipts and I would just add someplace. I was like, oh, I have some ideas. I'll just write on the back of these receipts. And I lose those all the time. Uh, was like all those ideas just flowing out in the world uh, and various trash cans are floating on the street. So I, that's when I started like, I was like, I need a different way of like putting ideas down than just like napkins and receipts. So I bought the typewriter and I'm I'm hoping to get another typewriter here soon. Cause I, I do like, I, I do like it. the stability of the typewriter and the kind of like the limitations of like what you can and I try to keep my phone away from me. I mean, although, I mean, it's tough to also avoid risk that, but it's yeah. I like, the, like the <laughs> no, there's, a permanency. there's a permanency <laughs> when you're typing and just there's an importance to what you're writing. And, you know, it doesn't feel so like we could just kind of cut and remove things and the whole thing. Yeah, you kind of got to be really thoughtful. And right. Like, yeah. And mine was broken, too. I had the L key uh, didn't work. So it put me in a different kind of like I just even had to like think about like like the L key. You just have to like press the L key differently. And so it was like. Yeah. <laughs> and it would eventually press down, but it's like, yeah, I have to like slow down if I'm using L's in a lot of words. <laughs> so like, I didn't like, force you to slow down. Like, I, if I'm going to spell any kind of word with the word L, and I have to kind of like with the letter L, and I have to slow down. So like, yeah, yeah it's to like just like take this place. Like, I have to just like like we, the, the my laptop keyboard. No, there's no stops. I can do whatever I want. And it's just like, but the just like that little key like slowed me down every time. And it was great to be like, yeah, pause for a second, yeah. and I hit that key the right way, and then keep moving on you know so uh, yeah I, I i do i miss the kind of like the brokenness of it as well <laughs> i like yeah. the, the it's nice to that in a particular way that was broken too yep yep um so let, yeah let's go let's go into the school a little bit because it is it's there are a lot of wonderful essays about that and you know your target um you taught eighth grade uh in predominantly muslim muslim kids in eighth grade and um all boys is that right all boys i think it was mentioned like that yeah but i, but, I had one class that was mixed uh, yep. gender, but but uh, most of my classes were all, and that was that one class is kind of like just more of a general catch-up class. So yeah, my yeah, like, yeah. main instructional classes were yeah all boy classes. What's your takeaway when you think about it now, just looking back in hindsight? Um, what's kind of your takeaway from the experience of of teaching um, uh, Muslim kids at that age? It's also interesting because it was a time time where you know the the twenty sixteen election was coming up, and, and and a lot of pressures on them from that so what's what thinking back about it how do you think about it sure yeah and um i mean you kind of start to think get to this point towards the end of the book and thinking about it in terms of more of um you know I, when i was starting it felt a lot like like a like a, a challenge right something to like kind of overcome yeah uh, because just in that and not in the sense of like i needed you know i was trying to like win over the students or whatever but just uh -huh. like in a way that all of us carried different um you know, I, when you're the instructor, you want to like pretend that you have this kind of like objectivity that you're just you're you're not a person when you're in the classroom. Right? You're more just kind of you're a professional. But that's just I mean that's not entirely true. Right? You can't turn your person self off, right? And so there's the times. I mean, a lot of the book is grappling with like my students have this need. I mean, like you said, it's the 2016 election, right? And they're hearing all this hateful speech, and they're hearing all this hate rhetoric from um, who would eventually the man who eventually become president, um, Trump. Who I guess is still the, around. The descent. I like how you were describing him as the descent in the book. The because you know, were talking about you know him coming down. There's some good, good ways when you were writing about him. It's fascinating. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, stealing from his own way of coming down that stupid elevator in his own fucking tower, right? So, I he gave me that. I just that sometimes it, like life is just like, hey, here's a little fun for for you. Like, yeah, there you go. He wrote this <laughs> gaudy elevator down into the basement to start his godforsaken campaigns so like, yeah, and yeah 
Who would have known yeah. that? But yes, they were. I mean, obviously, they were dealing with a lot of that. They were. I mean, you said they were going home. You know, they'd go home on on breaks from school, and they're now they're wondering if this is the last time they're going home. It's, exactly. I mean, we're experiencing that. You know, those pressures firsthand. It's pretty intense. Right. Yeah, and that's you know, I guess. Yeah, so it's a challenge, right? That's hard when you're somebody like I just want to like focus. And this is my first year teaching, right? So I was like, well, let's. It's like yes, that's hard. I don't. And I. It's how do you? You know, when you have this nervousness, you're like, I, I have to be teaching now, but this seems more primary, right? But then, like, you're feeling, you know, and so at the first, it was like this kind of like, well, I need to like, get past this challenge so we can get to the lesson, right? But I, I, I think, in reflecting and as I learned more about being an instructor, I, I realized how much more of a, uh, a gift it was to be able to be that person to help, kind of. If if there's a trust that they're giving you, then if they're coming to you with these concerns, right? Because the other way of doing yeah. it is just and bottle it up, internalize it. The student comes into the classroom like, I this is not the space where I can do this. I can't right. express that concern. But if they're able to come into that classroom and express that concern, express that anxiety, that fear, right? Then there's a trust that they've imbued on that space and then yeah. on you as a person. That I just kind of took me a while to realize that that was the case, right? Um, and so yeah, that was, you know, and I I mean I'm obviously I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, thinking about what's going on in Gaza, right? And thinking about, you know, how, I mean, how much, how much more difficult really it must be right now in this time for some of those students that I've Absolutely. worked with, the same students, right? But also a whole new generation of students who are dealing with kind of, um, you know, watching um, people be wiped off the map, right? Yeah. And just yeah. relentlessly in the kind of rhetoric that's going around with that just, there's no kind of concern for, that that group of people and so i i i um you know i recognize now that that's just it's an it's a i mean it's always been a kind of part of the american conversation but it's still an ongoing part of the american conversation mm -hmm. uh, and i'm no longer in that space to um have that positionality but uh, i i mean i i do hope that there is somebody that those students have that they trust still that they can take those kind of concerns and those anxieties to um because it's it's necessary, right? It's I mean, and it's tough when you're when you're an instructor, right? Because that's not necessarily what the role is designed for, and yet that's kind of what the role has become, right? It's much yeah. more like a um, there's a lot of nurturing needs, personal needs that come to that space that um is uh valuable and vital, and I. Um, yeah, but the, like you said, the trust, that's so important. I mean, there's times when I had, you know, just anxieties that far, you know, aren't even close to anything like that, but I'm still not taking them to many teachers. And it shows that they trust you, shows that you showed some space. What was really interesting, this kept coming up too, is you had um, kind of a very unique and, and often complicated relationship with the principal's son, because you had a tutoring thing with there. Um, can you tell us about some about tutoring this young man and kind of like, like, you know, he kept coming up in the book and I was wondering, if uh, that relationship, you know, kind of, uh, you know, taught you something or, or there's a reason that, that that was lingering with you so much to, I mean, he was, he was a big part of that teaching experience to you. Is that correct? Yeah, certainly. And yeah. I think a lot of it was, I mean, practical, right? We spent a lot of time one-on-one because -on -one I would, I would, instead of having a prep, and there's, private school is a mess. Instead of having a prep in the morning, I would do one-on-one do -on -one instruction with him because he got yeah. there early and he needed someplace to be. And so we would do a little one-on-one -on -one tutoring. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was involved kind of just like we would read an extra book outside of his assigned book. So we, I would be reading kind of like a little one-on-one -on -one book club, which I don't even really talk about in the book. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, it was a detail that didn't seem that important. But it, it, it's important in terms of like defining that relationship. There would be like reading like 
this book together and discussing it right and so it kind of became this kind of like i don't know it I started pretty much every morning by you know working with the student one-on-one -on -one and reading books and talking about books and inevitably talking about what was going on in the world and talking about what's going on in his personal life and things of that nature um and yeah i i think i mean a lot of it comes down to um there was a kind of like i think an identification in terms of the the pressures of being a first-year teacher and then um you know his parent was also my supervisor right and there's the kind of mm -hmm. uh and uh, as yeah, I was developing out some of these essays and thinking about that how that relationship built over the year and how that school year developed right the kind of like pressure I felt as first year teacher um with the a, a, a kind of stricter um admin who had a lot of like ideas for how I should be running the classroom but not a lot of solutions for how to get to the point that she like a lot of like standards that she had identify but not a lot of like solutions to help get me to those standards or help develop that classwork out um and then thinking about his own perspective as like the student um who i you know also again has a standard that he's expected to reach and then i guess i'm i was the one who was supposed to like help get him to those standards yeah. and like we're kind of learning in this process together um and kind of doing it in a way that was more um, you know, I was the only student I, I worked with him and then his younger brother, those were the two students I worked one-on-one -on -one outside of that, right? And not in a, in, you know, in a lot of ways, probably not an, not an experience that a lot of people have uh, in their first year teaching, where, you know, you, especially if you're doing like a public school route, you have 30, 40 kids and yeah. um, you can't give that much attention to any one individual and be doing a service to the other like 30 kids in your classroom, right? Yeah. Um, and so, I only had a classroom of nine and then had these one-on-one -on -one experience with these, right? So there's a lot of extra kind of like individual attention I can give to that particular student and the kind of things that you're struggling with in his work, but more importantly, the same kind of things you're struggling with in his kind of understanding of the world. And so, yeah, um, yeah it, it, you know, we I, I keep in touch, kind of. We're, we have, okay. we, we have each other on, on social media and every now and then again. It is, it is strange publishing this book um in the in the sense that everybody who i'm referencing in it is now in college and they just I don't, and i you know i feel bald all the time because i am bald but <laughs> there's no way to like really make that more palpable than to think like oh i have an artifact of all of you 10 years ago i guess now and yeah. now you're all like adults and that's strange yeah. to me and yeah. I, I i've been sometimes pushed that part out of it it's like yeah, you know, I was like, oh, they're still thirteen, right? And then I I see them on Instagram. I was like, oh no, you're at you're at UT at the football game, you know, like going to school for such and such. Like, damn, I'm old. <laughs> totally. It was. I mean, it was a fascinating dynamic. Not only, I mean, you're 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 spending that much time teaching, um, you know, uh, someone who is your supervisor. Also, like, there's he has that little extra privilege being that. I mean, he was coming in with a T, but there is, and I, we don't need to go too much into it. But there's a really nice moment when they're. You're kind of playing ball and you ask him what do you want to work on that was cool the coaching the uh the coaching yeah. was cool um i learned i loved learning kind of like these in addition they were kind of like dotted throughout the essays you know kind of your thoughts on the education system there's two quotes i love that i'm gonna share uh one was um during the basketball um when you were talking about being a coach and you know kind of talked about hoop james a lot which i loved and also the i promise uh lebron thing but talked about education however was is a, a um, has a stat sheet full of missed layups. There are no metrics to gauge who wins, only who loses. That had me thinking about things. Then also in the other uh, another essay about camping, 
Um, then you mentioned as an educator, I've always thought my role was to teach students how to nav navigate this broken earth and maybe even help to mend it. Um, and, and then you mentioned, though, I'd prefer to do it indoors, which is funny. But sure. uh, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, you were kind of coming to grips with, you know, in this first year, what is the best way? What are the best things to teach him? And I think one was to maybe how to deal with failure, how to deal with navigating a broken earth. What do you think about that now is as your viewpoint of, you know, what, you know, what you would tell, uh, you know, what were you teaching, um, what you would want to teach these kids, uh, you know, if you were to go back and teach them or kind of just how, because I mean, it's, 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 we've already touched on a little bit how difficult it is to, to navigate exactly who you are to these kids. But I mean, right. what are your thoughts on, on, you know, what you would love to, to share with them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah. And, you know, most of both of those quotes um were like reflection <laughs> you know those were like you know future me reflecting upon yeah. this that was past me within um yeah. I, you know at that time probably was more just like you know <laughs> frantic and get oh, through God, it you <laughs> gotta get through yeah. you gotta read this book and then yeah. i have a quiz for you and then an essay you have to write right um right and i yeah i yeah i think i mean i'm I'm not teaching in the public school space anymore. I'm teaching right now. I'm working in a public school. I work as a kind of a writing coach. Um, uh -huh. Oh, cool. Uh, so I mean, I've got the coach title again in a way that's more. <laughs> I'm more. I I love basketball. I I cannot teach anybody how to play it. I'm yeah. I'm bad at it. <laughs> I can. <laughs> I I love to watch it. I can I can scream at people when I see them doing something wrong on the TV. Uh -huh. but like yep. in terms of like, teaching something. <laughs> it was it was made pretty clear in the essay. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Right. So. Um, but now I have this coach title the way that's more applicable to me. So I'm that, working that works for you. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. writing I have some ideas about, right? And yeah. um, but I also teach um on the collegiate level. I'm doing my PhD, so I teach um composition. I'm teaching a creative writing class. Oh great. Creative writing this semester. Yeah. So I, I'm still engaged in like the act of teaching. And I, I do I, I do find that teaching, but also writing, te like teaching writing, which is what I'm most comfortable with, what I spend most of my time with, uh, I find is a really useful tool in terms of just like teaching this, like not necessarily like a particular way of viewing the world, but helping somebody develop the kind of like perspective, like understand where they fit into their, not just their like broader world, but even just like in their community, right? Yeah. And think about the way that there's so much power in being able to help somebody um, voice these thoughts that they're kind of coming through and like kind of getting, but not really quite understanding how to like articulate in a way or put down in any kind of way that has a kind of a meaning to somebody else, right? And so I I do really value this kind of uh, opportunity and space that I've been granted to kind of help folks like learn how to um, express what's already there, right? To kind of help bring Find out that voice. It's crucial. Yeah, exactly, Absolutely. right. And especially with so much to observe, um, too much to observe, I feel like, unfortunately, for a lot of young folks, right, there's, I mean, just in terms of like, what's the phone that's in their pocket, right, there's just so much chatter and noise and um, so much information that's being taken in, right. And so it, it can be hard to then kind of separate all of that and then find what is where you fit into all of the kind of extra chatter that is circling around you at all times of all day, right. And to kind of find that kind of individual voice that you have um is obviously I, the ideal version of it and a lot of times it <laughs> works 
you know, you get into the nitty gritty of and that it's away from that idea. But it, it, it's always working towards that like idea of like you have something to add to this space to this conversation that is distinct from the what feels like indistinct voices, right? All these different chatter and stuff, right? And I, and I think uh, when writing instruction is working at its you know utmost best is that you're you're helping someone to feel that they're not just a part of they're not just a lost statistic that they're an individual with the perspective they're, they're, their voice is unique and give them that confidence to know that that's i mean that's the that's the end game in a lot of ways yeah. right yeah otherwise the system wins right because the, otherwise the system is, convinces you that you are just a part of it's part of it yeah yeah the part of the, Bog the machine right? exactly and then yeah. when it can do that to you then you kind of lose a spirit a soul and a hope and a and that's that is you know yeah. that yeah Keep the system from breaking you, all these broken systems. So let's get into it. This is one of my favorite, favorite uh, essays in a God, uh, God is a mosh pit. It was, it's a tons of fun. It's, it's totally thoughtful. There's a, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here, but um, I just love to hear you talk about, I guess there's two questions here. Um, yeah, the, you know, the, they're both, what is, uh, why do you love mosh pits? I'd love to hear because some of what you talk about was awesome. And then uh, after that, I'd love to follow up with how is God like a mosh pit? Because there was it's just cool, cool parallels and just fun things that you were saying there. But what do you love about mosh pits? You had some really cool things to say about what why, why you were drawn to them and what you felt within them. Yeah, that's a great. I I, I don't like to pick favorites, but I I do. I realize, <laughs> especially now that I'm like you know reading from and supporting the book, yep. I end up. I have to like stop myself. I'm like, I'll read from God as a mosh pit again. Like, no, you did that last time. You need to find a new part of the book to like. But I, I don't know. I do. I, it's a lot of fun, and I, I mean, part of that is I, um, I got a lot of my like extracurricular learning was like in garage bands with my friends. Uh -huh. Um, I. I what was your band name? You never mentioned your band name, and did you? Oh, that's because it's terrible, and it's also the name <laughs> of. A, I, I, I think it's a Hill figure perfume line. It's we were uh -huh. the. Charm was my high school band name. What was it? Uh, the Midnight Charm. Okay. Yep. Which I found in um, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. It's the name of a uh, chapter in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Oh, cool. But then once we accepted it and we started like using it, we Googled yeah. it and it's the name of a perfume line as well, The Midnight Charm. <laughs> and like, so it, became, it didn't feel as hardcore anymore, yeah. Um, yeah. but we still kept it. And then in, and then in college, we were going by a my some different friends outside the band. We were yeah. Conklin, which comes okay. from one line of a King of the Hill episode. It's the season five finale. Uh -huh. uh, but he's an off-screen character named Conklin. And when Bobby oh, goes cool. to high school, um, which that one I still, you know, I yeah, it's I feel that. In the books. I don't need you know if people Google it from this episode, then it's fine. But it's like I don't need people here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that, that was the point. I was I was curious, and I you had good yeah. stories both of those. But yeah, you were drawn into that scene. Both yeah. of them kind of like a um, uh, Christian and secular level. And it was just, I just love how you talked about how, you know, you, you, at one point you said, I came to mosh pits in search of bodies who um, who stumbled as gracelessly as me. And they were just like, <laughs> you're talking about the collisions and what it meant when you collided and stuff. That was cool stuff. Yeah, I think there's something about like playing, you know, especially like punk rock, right? For people who feel a little bit, outsiderish like i did I, I you know i was growing up in you know mostly white suburbs at that point um a half brown kid and so i didn't have a whole lot of friends you feel a little bit outside and yeah. then you get to this music that's like yeah you're kind of weird but we're all kind of weird and what if we just like push each other around for an hour in the dark wow. and sweated and then afterwards we talked outside on the curb you know and it was like yeah there's a kind of like 
freedom and like I don't have to like worry about how to make friends in this space. You're just going to all be like kind of mixed together and we're all kind of like just having this cathartic release. And um, I think being able to like find that space. I was around 12 and I picked up the bass and I get up very much pragmatically. My friend is like, I'm learning guitar. I'm like, oh, sweet, I'll learn bass then. Uh, and so I was like, but I, being able to play music, being able to go to shows and just kind of like, you know, not worry about how I fit in that space. Because the mosh pit's always moving. You don't have to worry about how you fit in that space. Yeah. Once the pit opens up, you fit in there because everybody's fits in there. You're just bumping around, you're pushing around. Um, but there's still, I mean, there's complications with that, obviously, you know, uh, it's I, like I said, it's still white scenes and stuff. So you start to like, the more you start to like develop a consciousness, you're like, okay, well, I fit here, but I'm not, I kind of like fit. I don't really fit here because like I look around and I'm like one of the only people who looks like me who's here. And you start to kind of have these anxious thoughts. Um, yeah, you do mention uh, where to, where could black bodies go to mosh and, you know, kind of those thoughts and makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so you, uh, you know, so it's like that, that's kind of where the essay is like kind of a, a, analyzing like the kind of like, or looking back at the kind of like freedom that the mosh pit kind of introduced me, but also like acknowledging the reality of the fact that like, you know, it, it felt free, but also those are you like, you're kind of like a little like token in that space too, in some kind of ways. And yeah. I don't know, I still, I still go to shows and I still, I, I guess I started editing a lot of that piece too. And, mm -hmm. um, and COVID and during like the height of the lockdown. So it I was also kind of nice in a way to like, I think I kind of started to romanticize that piece in a, in a way. And, and just like, I was, Right, finishing it really in a time where you know I don't say not going to shows I wasn't like going out and like seeing anybody or touching anybody right so yeah. it was like it was kind totally. of like there was there was a kind of like um I mean I started it before lockdown right? I kind of had the idea but it started to become that like extra reverential idea of like relationality through physical and body and music and stuff yeah. like they really started being like okay this is a space that really was formative to me and really is still kind of very meaningful to me I'm I'm if I mosh now, I, I get a lot, I feel a lot worse in the morning, but I still love the shows and I still, we'll get in for like one song and then I, okay, that's, that's, that's yeah. like, we can handle well, it. I mean, just the power of music too. I mean, I'm, I love going to shows and a lot of people who are in my world love going to shows and during that lockdown, it really hurt. Yeah, you, you mentioned a line about the Holy Union promised by live music and I believe in it. And when everyone was able to get back out there and go to shows and be around each other and experience live music together it's, it's the church for a lot of us it's i mean it really yeah it, it definitely definitely and as somebody who was coming out of i like i i i, I don't know i spend a lot of time in texas so you go to church you go to youth group yeah. and yep. somebody whose social schema was developed a lot in church but we're starting to like feel really if i was saying that i felt like a little bit outside in the mosh pit starting yeah. to feel really outside in church right and starting to be like yeah. i don't know that this space is for me and yep. certainly I don't think it was designed for people like me um and so the like those kind of things were going hand in hand the more I became enmeshed into like punk rock and yeah. playing music the more I was like yeah this is the space where I start to really feel alive and I think for me and maybe this goes to that second question you were talking about yeah why I, I this idea of like God is a mosh pit, right yeah. for me it's more I don't know I find so much more divinity in the relationships between people and the relationships between um how people can make art together and then and listen to that art together and form new meanings, not just in the creation of the art, but in the like, kind of like sitting in that space and kind of like absorbing that music and absorbing that. Right. And yeah. into our kind of bodily frame um, and define those communities that really kind of help enrich you on, not just on a physical level, but in that kind of like that way that like you, you, you know, I don't know how much I believe in a soul, but I do believe in a spirit, right. That, like, yeah. that, you can get spirited by being around people who have that 
um, who are kind of emboldening that spirit with you and kind of making this effort to like, we're going to uplift each other in this space. And because we're, you know, we're aligned in this like thing that's happening that only we can do this kind of like creation of music that only the, it's a very yeah. human thing that, that kind of makes you feel that humanness, that distinctness of your humanity. And what's um, happening with the music and what's happening with the, the people experiencing the music is only happening right there at that time. And, exactly that we, right. we, guys, and that's magic. It's magical. And it, it's, yeah. it, 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 it gets, you know, I, it's something that even I take for granted sometimes like, Oh, that was a good show. Right. But there's a, it's a magical thing. Right. It's like a, you know, in you, those, there's those shows you go to that feel even more magical than some other shows. Right. And it's like, oh. you can't really explain why, that one but there's just a certain kind of energy at that particular moment and that particular show like yeah i don't know what happened there but <laughs> boy that was that felt different you know and, yeah, like, and i'm yeah, sure that's that, never happened you're convinced that's never gonna happen again like, like, it, like oh, man, that's the best so show i've ever been to i'll never get a better one right and like, <laughs> what is, that's what is that if not god you know <laughs> like, exactly exactly oh, man that's well well said um there's a really important chapter and not to kind of just turn on a dime but i'm gonna uh and where you get into the color line and you um there's a lot, lot of very, very thoughtful and, and interesting takes there. And uh, one that, that, that hit me, just kind of like a general statement about it, America, and you were using a small A at this point, um, and I, that shift, I, I appreciate that shift. Maybe uh, that could be kind of folded into your answer, but um, you wrote America has always been the color line. It slashes long and red through our history as if uh, carved by a sword and it bleeds steadily over every growing limb of the nation's body. Your, your writing's always really, really good. But can you tell us some about how you talk about the uh, color line in the book? Sure, yeah. And that 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 color line language, I, I do borrow from Du Bois, so too. Oh, oh cool, yeah. I, just, I saw WB coming in here and there, yep. yeah. Yeah, And so I, he, I, I find that, and this is maybe a little bit of a side, I find, I, I, I like, there's a little bit of poetry that comes out of like building off of somebody else's poetry. And I, mm. he, he has that, is the the quote i think it's in the opening of it right but the color line slat um this is another uh rupture in the i can't remember exactly the way he phrases it right but he, yeah. he talks about that he kind of gives me that color line as a uh, as a as a, a wound metaphor and then yeah. i, I tried to build off of that um yeah. Right? So, um but yeah i i that idea and that essay really was kind of where yeah yeah so in the book uh in this color line essay it's kind of i started we make this shift from using the lowercase a for America, but also all kinds of different um, state-sponsored state violence, agents wow. of state-sponsored violence. Right? So I, there's other essays in the book where I like all uh, lowercase, like Dallas-Fort Worth police, um, for instance. That happens in the book there, but also that kind of like shift in the way I was writing some of those essays happened in the writing of that particular essay itself. Um, so there was kind of an organicness to that. Um, but that, uh, in large part, it was because um, that essay kind of, again, that's another one that kind of emerged out of um, the pandemic and specifically that one thinking about the kind of disproportionate ways that, I was, you know, uh, black and brown folks were being um, affected by the pandemic because who were the essential workers were who were still having to like go out and engage in society and then subsequently catch the virus by having to be in that position, um, but also the kind of like heightened awareness again of many times of heightened awareness around like racist violence with um, the George Floyd protest um, and and then also later on with the um, uh, I don't remember the 
the young white man's name who went out to defend whatever. He brought a machine gun across state lines to shoot some people because Kyle. there was a Kyle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And so that was the kind of like this, that one, I don't like to start from a space of like anger, but that one really did kind of like, Oh, this motherfucker. Uh, right. And he just really reminded me of, um, I have a friend. It who, makes my blood boil. Yeah. And he's just the, the, the entitlement and the, yeah. just the, I, Right. But his smug face was all over the goddamn place because you know, the story was pressing out. And it made me think of this moment. A friend of mine, white friend of mine, uh, we're not really friends anymore. It's nothing to do with this incident. It just life happens and uh, whatever. But we were young and he goes around carrying this like he painted an airsoft gun all black. So it looked like a real gun. He was going around trying to find us making a joke or whatever. Um, and he just kind of was like, hey, don't do that. You know, um, and so there's this like seeing Kyle's face all over the place with a real, you know, machine gun that he fired at real people and yep. and suffered very few if any consequences for doing that made me think of this like yeah my friend this dumbass thing my friend did running around suburban texas with the fake real looking gun and was the guy just like a hey don't do that you know right and so and that essay kind of emerged. Like Trayvon got, you know? yeah yeah exactly right yeah it, it's the the uh, the injustice of that and he's just he's a he was 12 right he's a dumbass i don't think he, oh. Yeah, he doesn't. They don't think he needed to be shot holding a fake looking gun, but, no but the fact that he was able to do that is a, a testament to the you know the sickness. America's right? you know, the, the different yeah. experiences many of us have. Yeah, absolutely. So really thinking about so that just forced me to think about, and there's a lot of different parallels to growing up in the suburbs mm. of Texas that kind of started to emerge as I was thinking about those things, and so I started thinking about um, an incident in McKinney in which mm -hmm. some young black girls were going, trying to go to a pool party in a suburb of McKinney, Texas, and then were asked to leave. And yeah. when, when they were like, we have a right to be here. Like we're here with the friend who lives here. Um, the officer, you know, put his knee on her back in the way that the same kind of move that um, was used to kill George Floyd. Right. So like that, that parallel was hard to avoid. And then McKinney, Texas is a 20 minute drive from where I was growing up. Right. And so these parallels started to emerge and they mm -hmm. kind of tracked my, experiences growing up in those same neighborhoods in which these same um, violent incidents were happening um, that resulted in the loss of the lives of Black people. And thankfully, in the McKinney incident, she survived the incident. Um, she's still alive. And um, so, but these kind of things that looking at these parallels and seeing and kind of exploring this kind of double standard of Black life and specifically in places where Black life is kind of seen as an inch an intrusion on a different kind of space right and that was which was my own kind of experience growing up in the suburbs right as i like, yeah i had friends in there but there's times you feel like oh i'm kind of like i don't belong here i'm intruding on this space we kind of like we duped everybody you know we duped everybody by being here um which felt i mean there's a lot of dealing with like the imposter syndrome in this book as well and there's like yeah. that's imposter syndrome on the professional level but imposter syndrome sometimes and like a on a human level too like i'm I don't, I don't know, like I, if I feel human in this space the way that other people feel human in this space, right. and so yeah, uh, you talk about that a lot throughout. Just you know, with, with with being biracial in these different spaces, and there's even with the color line, you had an amazing line. I grew up on both sides of the color line, but that's a you know because that color line resides within me. Which and I mean, so that's and that's also what I'm talking about when a lot of these kind of these essays kind of weave together in a way that kind of helps us really get to know you, get to know your experience and your thoughts as you're talking about these different, different things. And it's, it's really cool how it does work together. You never know with a book of essays that they might, you know, they might be so, so disparate, but this one kind of danced together in a lot of ways that worked. Um, 
we got to talk burnout real quick before we kind of get towards our end. But any thoughts how to move through life and avoid this sort of burnout that you discussed in your book? Is it, I mean, how, how we do it? It looks like you're, you're in a good space now. I mean, it, things going well. And, and what's your thoughts on burnout at the moment? Yeah. Some of that, you feel it. I mean, you're commuting burnout. You're dealing with the, the school. You feel it in the book. Yeah, I don't know if I uh, if I have solutions for people. I, and I don't think reading I don't want to tell people not to buy the book. Buy the book. I, uh, but if you're buying the book because you're like, this is going to help me. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. That's not going to tell me how to like deal with the burnout. I, I did not. There's probably a self-help book on the shelf for you somewhere <laughs> that also won't help you, but will tell you that it will help you. Um, yeah. yeah, I I definitely, I, I learned a lot in writing the book. That was not to say that I didn't learn a lot in writing the book about some different um, patterns that I, I I have personally in terms of like, you know, putting the the amount of pressure that you put on oneself um certainly yeah. that i i did at that time um in terms of what it is that you're meant to do at any given moment right and um that i have made more peace with like i don't have to do all the things that i i feel like i'm supposed to do there's i have a i have a human capacity that i mm-hmm. I, I can that i can work within and you don't need to feel guilty if you fall short of what feels that extra human capacity um, that has certainly helped me in terms of managing burnout. I Uh still, uh, you know, I I say yes to too many things and that's just an eagerness for like, uh, mostly just like, I don't know. I I love my friends. I love my community and stuff. And I, I, so I, and I recognize that saying yes to too many things though does (laughs) begin to wear on me uh, and and all that good stuff. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I think, I mean, that's kind of what the last essay is trying to grapple with this idea between like, sitting in a in a space of discomfort rather than um trying to force your way out of it and kind of um adding to that amplification of the exhaustion you already feel right so there's this idea between i don't know i, I kind of landed on this idea of like waiting for something right I'm, and at the end of that i say i'm waiting on this album from frank ocean which i guess technically we're still always going to be doing right it's been now like yeah, I was going to um, ask you, what's your anticipation level now and, and excitement for whatever he might do next? <laughs> You're yeah, <waiting. laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm again, I, I learned some things, but there's some I I there's like a moment in that essay where I joke about like staying up late to watch his, the little streaming of his warehouse space yeah. that people thought he was going to like release it on there. And it's just a black and white screen of like an empty warehouse that he would occasionally like very seldomly you would see come in there and work on something. So like it was just the most monotonous 24-hour stream of this thing. And like, oh, that was still, I can't believe I did that. And then like he had his Coachella set and then they they canceled the live stream of it and I ended up staying up <laughs> till three in the morning watching a Instagram <laughs> live reel of somebody streaming somebody his Coachella set. And it was like, oh my God, I have not changed. It's been seven <laughs> years. The same human being. I'm here at two in the morning. I, yep. I don't know if I had work the next day. It doesn't matter. I probably would have done it anyway. And just yep. watching this, like the choppiest stream of what was not a very good set. I love the man's music. It was a, a strange, discombobulating experience to watch. Okay. What I didn't, he didn't seem to want to be there. Okay. Uh, and the performance <laughs> reflected that. Yep. Uh, like, this is, uh, why am I doing this, right? Uh, so <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not waiting. If new music drops, it would be lovely. I, I have the old music. I'm just trying to have to just find peace with finding new things in the old music, which I can usually trick myself into doing. Yeah. But I I think coming to peace with that though, coming to peace with this idea of like, yeah, life is waiting and you don't have to keep working to like 
force a thing that's out of your control to happen, right? You know, but it's not also like then just like, well, I can't fix this. So I should just give up, right? It is kind of like to have this kind of steady progression towards what it, what that goal is, right? You know, I, I think that's kind of where I find myself at more than like trying to go beyond capacity or, or, and I think in the worst trajectory is to like, just let go of it all, right? To, to retreat into apathy, right? That is, that is the thing I really, um, have cautioned myself against right is i think that's the absolute worst thing that can happen with burnout Absolutely. is that you just convince yourself that like well i can't change this so why bother at all why why care and, and to get in that apathetic mindset uh and again that is that is the that's those systems kind of wearing down and what it is that right. you know your spirit can do and what it is that your body is capable of doing right and so um finding that kind of rhythm that works well with you and that you still feel like you're driving towards what it is that is, you know, just and right and, and workable for that individual versus trying to, you know, give into that grind culture and work beyond that, or to just shut down completely and, you know, lose uh, any kind of like energy that is, you know, we should, that is vital to being alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well said, fighting the apathy and finding one ways to hold on to hope, I think is so crucial. Uh, I did just kind of lightly uh, allude to the commuting um, essay. You're not the only person who learned how to drive stick on a small blue Mazda. <laughs> back. That was I had this. I, that was really really hitting home to me. Um, yeah, I just love the book. I love you know you you know we talked a little bit about you you're talking about your grandmother, your mima. I I love that she always reminded you that you were a writer when you guys talked and like that thought that was really cool. I just I think this book's a really incredible portrait of what it's like. Growing up, um, you know, uh, black in Texas and thus in America, I learned a lot about the experience. Obviously, I don't have that experience. And it's, it's just it was just it was so honest what you were sharing on the page. The parallels you draw are amazing. The Hamlet with American history. I don't know. There's a lot to chew on. And I just I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed talking about it with you today here. So thank you for coming on the show, Sean. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for all those nice words about the book. I mean, it, it's it's always lovely to hear um, that how people uh, sat with the book and how people uh, thank you that's very yeah. I, I appreciate that yeah of that's course of course mean yeah. it definitely. so cool yeah yeah um... yeah 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 that's the way every day goes every time we've no control if the sky is pink and white if the ground is black and yellow it's the same way you showed me nod my head don't close my eyes Halfway on a slow move It's the same way you showed me If you could fly then you'd feel south Up north it's getting cold soon The way it is we're on land So I'm someone I hold true Keep you cool when it's still alive Won't let you down when it's all ruined Just the same way you showed me Showed me You showed me love Same way you showed me Cannonball off the pool 
much side. All the kids trying off the roof. Just the same way you showed me you were sure. If you could die and come back to life, up for air from the swimming pool. You kneel down to the dry land, kiss the earth that birthed you. Gave you tools just to stay alive and make it up when the sun is ruined. That's the same way you showed me. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.